Welcome, everybody, to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Inc. I'm Pete Wright. That's Howard Tybal. Hello, Pete. Hello, like Howard. <laughs> My kids love that, too. Hello, Pete. Oh, it takes me back. It takes me to the early, the halcyon days of podcasting. Uh, we are, uh, we're, boy, we're sort of wrapping up spring break season around the country here, and we're, we've decided to take on a really uh, simple topic today. Uh, <laughs> you know, only I know your sarcasm. You're flagging your sarcasm. I'm flagging it. I'm, I'm, I am hanging a flag on it. This is a, this is a tough one. This is, a, we're, we're sort of doing a response or a spinoff of an article by uh, Mark Kierlaber uh, in uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, that went live on March 24th, uh, just a couple of days ago as we record this. And the article was titled, Financially Strapped Colleges Grow More Vulnerable as Economic Recovery Lags. Uh, it's a. It, it takes on. Um, I, I don't want to put too fine a point on it. Make it more dramatic than it needs to be. But there is a real sort of bloodletting going on in, uh, across particularly smaller uh, institutions. And uh, you know, as you and I have been talking about this article, it seemed like it it uh, might be worth. Uh, digging into some of these bigger issues, as you are uh, yeah. in the thick of it. You are working with these kinds of institutions to help yeah. define strategic direction. So that's really our theme today. Do you, you share some opening thoughts, will you? Well, I'll tell you, what. when I read this, it uh, there wasn't a, like, oh, it's about time. But I got to tell you, this is a wake-up wake up call. And I think that's that's what this article is doing and should do for trustees, for heads of schools, especially small schools, even schools that are doing well in their in, enrollment in this you know upcoming next season and they got a decent endowment. This should be a wake-up call to the fact that uh, what's coming is having to make tougher decisions. And this is something higher ed has historically been uh, not very good at, and it's it's around the workforce. Why like, why have they been not good at that? Because, well, if you go way back, uh, and I think that this mentality still is there, is that there's there's sort of been an implicit promise that if you join a college university, you have a job for life. And I think people in the corporate space learned that a number of years ago, that that, that promise was no longer there. And then you know, people became acclimated to the realities around that. I think higher ed is just coming, beginning to come to terms with that it is acceptable if we are leading these institutions and we're really talking about financial stability, we have to look at our people. And this article, which this is the first time I've seen the, the kind of clear description of examples around layoffs at several schools, even saying the word layoffs. I can't tell you how many meetings I'm in with senior leadership, and there are euphemisms for everything, especially for this concept of layoffs. Now, the, there's a way of doing it, and the schools that do this well, meaning they right-size their workforce basically bringing their expenses in line with their revenue. The schools that do this well recognize that there's three basic categories of quote-unquote layoffs. One is uh, the idea that they're not going to fill vacancies. There's a lot of vacancies in uh, institutions where not filling that or saying we're not going to fill that, that's the equivalent of taking away that position from a department and save some money. Right. The second way, which is also somewhat compassionate, is considering early retirements, and these have been more predominant since 2008. And the third way is actual layoffs, saying to somebody, listen, your position is no longer necessary uh, given how we're trying to restructure ourselves. 
it is an important thing that institutions look at. Every time I get up in front of a group, Pete, and I say, the one area that is the greatest expense is your salary, comp, and benefits, every single leader is not in their heads going, yeah, and we don't know how to have that conversation. What does that mean they don't know how to have that conversation? Is it simply that they, because they haven't historically, because getting a job with a university, uh, you know, tends to be uh, like getting a job with the government, you know, or was in the 80s, you know, you just be there for life. They've never had the opportunity to practice it uh, or that there's an expectation of employees that they're safe uh, and they just, uh, there's more sort of sensitivity. Yeah. And and I think that there's a strong sense of uh, loyalty, especially loyalty in the academic side. So if you're an administrator who works for a faculty member, uh, you know, I've seen numerous times where faculty will come to administrators' defense in the face of uh, considering some type of restructuring and how important it is these people or this person is to my organization. And that sense of loyalty is very positive, but also over time it's something that's, that – institutions or the leaders have to be willing to say this is what we're this is why we're doing this this gets back to that whole conversation i've been talking about now for a number of years which is really being able to describe the brutal facts of what we're dealing with as an institution and have a vision for the future part of what this article speaks to is the fact that it it suggests that it's um Focusing specifically on short-term issues and, the, and not really looking at long-term, what what I have seen great institutions doing, and I'm working, we're working with some of them right now, and they are doing both. They are they are right-sizing their operating budgets for the next three years. They're saying we have to get in front of this by looking at our structure, but we're also we're going to step back and say through a reconstituted strategic plan, this is where we're trying to go in the next 10 to 20 years. Now, maybe 20 is too far, but 10 years, this is where we want to be. And those messages have to be there, a positive view of the future for those who are remaining, as well as a story about this is what we're tackling and this is why we have to do these things. Some schools I'm working with right now have never laid off one employee in their entire tenure, at least the people I've worked with. And other, So part of it, Pete, is a practice, is, is developing a discipline that they can do this and they won't have uh, a riot on campus. I mean, there's, there's a fear about what the reaction will be. And most of the time, the reaction... You know, I think it's I think it's terrific that you brought up this concept of loyalty. Uh, I have received feedback from one administrator on this uh, issue when discussing discussing layoffs. You know that there is this sense of you know we want to create an institution, uh, cultivate a culture in our institution that uh, you know in which employees don't have to come to work and you know fear that they're not justifying their jobs uh, in, in the way that they should that they're at risk somehow and and we have a culture in higher ed. Uh, that we don't do that, and that's that's not something that we touch on because we're different. We don't want to be considered that yeah. sort and, of a race. And I was thinking, too, that part of what's going on in the administrative side of the house, the non-academic areas, is that in, you know, if you think about tenure, tenure is a, is a, a freedom uh, that gives uh, freedom from you know, protecting the, the academic faculty member, so that they can speak their mind. On the administrative side, there's this implicit kind of tenure. You know, once you get a job here, you will, uh, 
you're not necessarily set for life, but you don't have to really worry about it. Like you said, we want to create a safe environment for people to feel that their jobs are not at risk. You know, the other thing that I'm seeing more and more of in because when we get asked to do projects, whether it's you know some kind of institutional review that helps them look for revenue or cost savings, benchmarking, is that nobody wants to go first. So, so the problem right now is if, if an institution doesn't uh, is it wants to consider, for example, stopping football. Oh, right? they're not going to. St- but and and then let's say there's real momentum for them to not do football. They are they need evidence that that there are schools that are their peer institutions that are doing the same thing. It's like nobody wants to be the first one. Because the risk, if you're the first one, is you will, in a sense, you become in the spotlight. I mean, part of the thing that is, uh, you know, no school, in a sense, wants to be in the paper unless it's good news. And you you do something that risks being put in the news and gets characterized in any kind of negative way. You risk uh, the perception that your school's in trouble. So I think that there is this overcautiousness that is going to shift as more and more schools find themselves making and doing tough decisions. I think that we're at the beginning stages of tougher decisions happening, especially at the smaller colleges that are regionally serve, uh, you know, students in their area are not the Ivies, but charge a very high tuition and have to step back and go, all right, we have to make some tough decisions, and and unfortunately, that that's gonna that lives in a, a particular domain, and it's around the workforce, and there's no getting around that. And yet, you can close academic programs, you can you can change your business model and say, you know, we're gonna focus on this and not that. But ultimately, schools have avoided for too long looking at, at that they have the right workforce for the institution that they have. It's just, it, it, no one would argue with that, but nobody wants to talk about it. Well, it's such an interesting thing to talk about, I think, too. And much of it is because it's positioned so negatively in right. the in across the industry. What we have now come to understand in the on the corporate side of the house is that we have to restructure because the needs of the business change over time, right? Right. Uh, that there is a sense of, you know, if we're going to go down that road of having the right people in the right roles at the right time, and as the business needs change, as the market changes, uh, and in higher ed, as program needs change, requirements change, uh, as demand fluctuates, uh, it's it has not heretofore been an accepted practice to change workforce uh, in light of the changing market. Because they haven't had a, they haven't had the flexibility they haven't given themselves the flexibility like in the corporate sector to be able to pull all the appropriate levers to keep themselves financially viable and everything's been focused around uh dealing with an operating budget gap it happens every year this is not new territory every the schools are in in many cases a very similar place they've been in for the last 20 years the difference is there's a spotlight on it and there's more pressure. Uh, the public pressure is also changing the dynamic in that there's a, there's a greater sense of ownership uh, of parents. You know, think about it. 
Think about when all of a sudden you discover that you had the capacity to find uh, out exactly what your car cost. Oh. And and understood what the sticker price really means. Right. Uh, uh, families are more empowered now than ever to be able to uh, understand the needs, uh, what what a school is actually charging, and how to get the data. And as a result, and and, and the pressures now of tuition not being able to be raised the way they like, they could in the past. And I think those pressures are causing schools to relook at more seriously their business model. But again, my premise has been for a long time, until some predominant schools that have the appearance of being financially you know, solvent, everything's good, that they either have to close a big part of their program or they close their doors or they have to merge, when that starts to happen a couple times, more and more schools are going to jump on the bandwagon to say, see, this institution uh, in the town over, they have done this. We now can start, we can take this, uh, take this step too. And unfortunately, that is the, it, 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 it falls into a leadership conversation. Um, well, that's, know, a, that's what I was going to get, it was going to ask, you know, you, in, in your work, as you're working on, uh, you know, doing these institutional reviews and benchmarking projects, you know, you're, you know, you're working to help these institutions find strategic, you know, define a strategic direction, as you already said, you know, looking 10, if not 20 years out, um, you know, by way of financial sustainability. And I say that because it's, it seems so important in projects like this, when we see this data, how do you know you're responding uh, in a way that is thinking longer term when you're dealing with these, uh, you know, these human resources issues uh, and not responding to a short term thinking or a symptom? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that schools have become very accustomed to dealing with symptoms. It's a decision making uh, challenge. I think that, uh, you know, as we do more and more work around helping uh, senior teams make better decisions. I think we're discovering more and more of what they're responding to are the external symptoms. And that's that's a good foray into the conversation. But at some point, uh, you've got to step back and go, what does it mean? What, what changes should we be putting in place? And I think the truth is, at this point, we're still, as an industry, and even external, uh, you know, suppliers and resources, we're still trying to understand the problem. I would, I would, I would speculate that we're still not in a place where anybody really has, uh, even for the different kinds of higher eds that are out there, an answer. We're still trying to understand the problem, and. There's a lot of pontificating. There's a lot of writing going on. Uh, but I think we're getting there. I think we're getting closer to uh, schools understanding that they have to deal both with the short term and have a long-term strategy. The, the difficulty in higher ed is it's such a decentralized community, and there's so many different kinds of stakeholders, that the key is going to be getting the, all the people who need to be part of this at the table together to solve the problem. That does not happen enough. This is a then this comes back to this issue of of the importance of the senior leadership team, the management team in the university, and the impact uh, that they have. Uh, and by the way, when I, when you say senior leadership team, I want to be clear: we're talking about senior academic folks as well as senior administrative folks. You know, there's there's the business side of higher education, and then there's the what it's really serving, which is the teaching and the research, and 
left. Uh, it, it is it is a misconception to think when you say senior management. Anybody listening to this, the senior management is not talking about the academic side of the house because it does. Uh, the academic side of the house, in some cases, need to decide if they want to participate deeply in this conversation. Uh, absolutely, and you can uh, you know I would just um, highlight some of the podcasts we've done recently on reaching across the aisle and the CAO CBO exactly. relationship, that, that, and That's just right. how important that is. Uh, but I, I wonder if you could comment a little bit on this, uh, you know, on the relationship that these roles have in defining an institution's agility in the education market. Well, you mean like, you know, the roles on the management side of the house? So we know whether it's enrollment management, you know, student affairs and auxiliary functions and facilities. Um, is, uh, yeah, but well, I mean, I'm getting more to the issue of, of you know, having the institution wide responsiveness to market changes, right? To Because this is one of the things we don't see. And I've talked before about, you know, my own alma mater, which had a, uh, an, you know, an issue with one of the programs, my program, and uh, they closed it. They essentially burned the program to the ground uh, in order to start something new. Uh, and uh, so they brought in all new leadership for this academic program, a new uh, you know director of the program, new faculty, and called it something slightly different. Uh, but essentially, this was their way, not knowing any other way to make an easy transition into this new world because the you know the field has changed. Uh, this was their way to say, you know, we're gonna we, we need to try something dramatically different, and we need to do it fast. So we're going to be agile in this area. We're going to take two years, burn the old thing to the ground, and start something new. Uh, as quickly as as we can possibly do it. To me, that is a that I, as burned as I felt uh, at the time, knowing that 25 years ago, you know, my I had this fantastic degree. Uh, you know, I see that as really a a, a signal uh, to one way that academic programs can respond to the changing market. Students aren't going for this. We need to change the way we think yeah. about what we offer. Because well, yeah, I'll say if you could have been a fly on the wall, what you would have seen there is is a leader or a set of leaders who are on the same page or found a way to be on the same page. And I'll tell you, you look at five different institutions, you have five different ways that that leadership body comes together to make decisions. Sometimes the president is an observer and a listener and taking input from his vice presidents. Other times the vice presidents are waiting for the president because the president's the one who is front and center and has to be in everything. It is it is so specific to that institution's leadership model and having the right people in there who are ready and willing to work together. In your situation there, uh, that to me is an unusual circumstance where they decide, you know what, we are going to be dramatic here. Uh, we're going to do something that uh, is going to allow us to look at this fresh and clean. And I'll tell you, most schools and most leaders are not willing to do it. It's too risky for them to do something that could be perceived either from a set of faculty, the board members, the media. There's always somebody who's not going to like it. And that's why, you know, my experience more and more is leaders have to have a backbone and be willing to risk that maybe they're going to fail or maybe they're going to do something that's right for the institution, but you know what? There's no guarantee that they're going to be left standing. I mean, that that to me is a sign of a true leader, and that's not an easy. Uh, you gotta be. You gotta have a certain kind of backbone to be willing to make tough decisions and, and potentially risk your job. 
Well, that's exactly what I'm getting at. Like the the whole idea of being able to take those sorts of risks, as you say, it's not usual, but uh, isn't that what we're striving for? Yeah, and and there's a lot of, and I think in the bell shaped curve of of people that are ahead of the curve and people that are slightly behind and people are, that are laggards. Just, I think that what's playing out here is what plays out in different industries is that there are going to be those who are going to risk and succeed, those who are going to risk and fail, and then there's going to be the majority who are going to look to see at the carnage and say, all right, what did they do right? What did they do wrong? Here's a calculated thing for us to do. I, I think, though, we're all sitting in this really uh, ambiguous place where it is really unclear how this is going to shake out. I think that the, the prevailing wisdom is the elite schools, and we can have different definitions of what those are, they will find a way through this because there's a presumption that if you get a degree from an elite school, you will have the right kind of, you know, it's not like Harvard has a better uh, graduate school of education degree program, but it's Harvard, you know, and it's Yale, and and whatever those elite schools are that you put on the category, those schools will continue to have uh, a sufficient enrollment and be able to charge what they want to charge to get, to get um, you know, students through their programs. The majority of schools, though, are going to have to figure out what their brand is and and get refined around that. We're, we're, we're trying to do something very difficult, Pete. We're trying to undo uh, years of offering more and more and more so that maybe we'll attract a wider base. And schools now have programs that are no longer viable. So, But uncoupling a program is tied to faculty who teach in other areas too. So that's what makes this particularly hard. Uh, the schools that are, 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 are dealing with this now, they're the ones that actually are getting the data about their programs, and they are putting it in front of leadership and faculty and saying, we have to make some changes here. Uh, so you are sending this uh, wonderful uh, piece uh, by... Um, Mr. Kierleber, to some of your clients, and I'm wondering how you are positioning this. You're sending an email to your clients at, at school saying, hey, you need to read this. Why? Well, that's interesting. I, uh, yeah, I am sending this this article out. to, And my guess is a lot of them saw the title or read the title, and, and, and they know what this is. Um, it's a, it, this, this article is a reminder yeah. that it it's only continuing. But I also think the article is a reminder for leadership that it's important to get behind closed doors and have the workforce conversation. I think this is an empowering article in one way in that it does show that schools are looking at, some of these small schools, they're looking at their workforce and, and, and they're making some tough decisions about you know, having to, in some cases, lay people off. And I think that kind of evidence is important for schools to see because many of them don't feel like they can have that conversation. When you see other schools doing it, I think it empowers you to say, maybe we should be looking at that. It, it is uh, a fascinating look at uh, this, uh, the changes uh, that continue to plague higher education and as, as these smaller schools try to right their uh, direction. And, and uh, it really is an interesting article. We'll put it in the show notes at titlelink.com uh, with the uh, notes for this episode. You know, and uh, I also just want to end by saying, yeah. Pete, I, I'm, 
I'm optimistic about the future. You know, there's a the danger with articles like this is it it paints a negative and dire view. This is not about a dire view. This is about how do we sustain the institutions so they can grow in the right direction. And I and I'll tell you that there the schools that are having these conversations are going to be okay for the most part, but they have to be willing to have the conversations at the most senior level and put everything on the table. Whatever we call those elephants in the room, they need to talk about those. Uh, and there's not that many levers. Workforce is one of the one of the biggest levers, and it's now coming out. So I think that's a positive sign. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I mean, we we talk so often about tuition adjustment, financial aid adjustment as the big levers, you know, for for what we can do to handle a, the revenue side. Uh, but but talking about programmatic adjustment and workforce adjustment, it's it, it's this is new. Uh, accommodation to the financial sustainability discussion. I agree. Powerful. Um, so if you want to find out more about this show and what Howard and I are talking about and uh, our growing catalog of fantastic guests, uh, head over to tybelink.com and uh, you can find out all you need to know about the Navigating Change podcast. You can search for us in the iTunes podcast directory, by far the largest podcast directory, uh, and it's a, a great way to subscribe for free. Make sure you don't miss a single episode of Navigating Change. Uh, I think that's it. Do we have any other announcements for the people, Howard? Not that I can think of, Pete. I love it. On behalf of Howard Teibel, I'm Pete Wright. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week on Navigating Change, the podcast from Teibel, Inc. <laughs>